15. And recently we have been going through the gospel account according to Matthew. We just paused in chapter 8 a few weeks back. And so I'll begin by just looking at one portion of chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel. If you're using the Pew Bibles again, um, the passage that we're going to start with after I read this is in page 706. But we, we reached Matthew 8 and the end of verse 22. And there were two people in this portion who had heard of Jesus and had perhaps heard some of his teachings. And they, one of them rushed towards Jesus, a scribe, a teacher of the law, and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he seemed very zealous and very worthy of acceptance and, and calling into the ranks of Christ's discipleship. But Jesus did not jump on that opportunity. He caused him to do some serious reflection. Um, Jesus had uh, recently taught what is known as the Sermon on the Mount before this point, where he said that the way that leads to life, contrary to many false teachers and what they say today, it starts with a narrow door, a narrow gate, and it is hard. In other words, to truly be a disciple of Christ um, does not offer with it success in earthly endeavors or health or wealth or prosperity in this life. But it offers all of that in abundance beyond your wildest dreams in the next. But Jesus says, for those who want to follow him, take up your cross, not your hammock, and follow me. Deny yourself. He says things like that. And he tells us this person who rushes to him and claims that he'll follow him anywhere. He says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his own head. And we thought about the fascination of that statement. Considering that as John 1, 3 and many other passages make clear... It was through Christ Himself, the Word made flesh, that all things were made. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Yet, in His incarnation, in His becoming one of us, He not only became fully dependent on creation, while somehow mysteriously in His divine nature upholding it, but He had no home, while the birds and the foxes found their homes and their food. He's showing us how humble he became, how much he emptied himself, as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says. But this theme, this phrase, the Son of Man, is something that I want to pick up on in our time this morning in the Word. Usually, we just walk steadily through passages of Scripture. Today is going to be a bit different. Instead of slowly flying over at a gradual bird's eye view, it's going to be more like an Apache helicopter flying back and forth in a war zone. So for those of you who used to play that, that game, I forget what it's called now, but um, Bible, Bible Drill, I think it was. 
be ready to flip around to a few passages, okay? So we're going to read, and I want you to keep the, 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 the phrase or the title that Jesus uses in chapter 8 for the first time, which he actually uses over 30 times, which is in Matthew's historical account of his life and death and resurrection. And that, that title is Jesus' favorite self-designation, the Son of Man, which picks up on a, a vision that God gave to Daniel in one of his dreams, where he sees one who looks like a son of man, who comes before the ancient of days and is given universal rule and power and authority. So Jesus uses that phrase of himself over 30 times in Matthew's Gospel. Again, it's his favorite self-designation. But coupled with that, he also tells his followers as they realize that he is the Messiah. Don't say that yet. Don't tell people yet. The time has not come. But here we see something different. And sometimes it's useful to go to the, the end of the story to look back towards the beginning in a more efficient way. So that's what we're going to be doing today. This text, known as the Great Commission, in the last five or so verses of Matthew's Gospel account, is also the foundational command given to the church throughout the ages until Jesus returns. It is not a, a, a command that he gave only to his disciples, or else we wouldn't be able to follow it. It is not a command that is only to be carried out by some of us, perhaps pastors or elders or Sunday school teachers or people who feel called to do so. It is a command that every Christian, every believer is to follow. There's a command here that you'll see soon in verse 19 that needs to be understood in that light. So let's read these verses and we'll look at the context as we continue thinking through God's word. Matthew chapter 28, and I'll read verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask again that you would help us to see what you want us to see. There are so many things going on in each of our lives. Your truth remains the same, but there are different ways that the same truth needs to be received today, applied to our lives today. And there's no way that any one of us, myself or even the entire room full of people, could figure out how that needs to happen, but you are omniscient. You know what we need and you meet us where we are. Your word 
always accomplishes what it is sent out to do. And I thank you for that. So help us now to hear, understand, obey, and be eternally blessed by your word. And we ask these things again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to, first of all, I've said this a few times, but the, the best way for you to do any Bible study, to study any portion of the Bible, is similar to real estate. What matters most in real estate is location, location, location. And what matters most in understanding a particular text versus misunderstanding it, to rightly understand what matters most is context, context, context. So, when we look at the beginning of verse 16, we see these words, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. If you go up a little bit further in this chapter, a little, a little bit earlier, you'll see that the context, the immediate context, there's always three contexts you want to keep in mind when you read the Bible, the immediate context, the, the verses preceding and coming after what you just read, and that is the, the first context. Then there's the broader context. So this is a portion of Matthew's gospel. And then how does this whole gospel fit into the entire narrative of the Bible? So let's look at the immediate context. Look at verse 1 with me. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And later on, Matthew gives us the reality that they could not find Jesus' body when they went there because he had risen from the dead. And an angel directs them. And as they're going from the tomb, they actually bump into Jesus providentially. Look in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. In the same way that we see in verse 16, or verse 17 rather, that they worshipped him, but some doubted. Right? We see these ladies mixed with both great joy and fear. And they ran to, they, they, they ran to tell the disciples. And in the midst of that, Jesus meets them. And he says, greetings. And look at what they do. They come up to him. They take hold of his feet, which means they bowed themselves as low as you can possibly get. And they worshipped him. The women worshipped him. And before we get to the disciples, following the instructions that the women actually gave, the first two people to see Jesus, that's very important, in the midst of those two accounts of people worshipping the risen Christ, we have this historical account of the chief priests and the guards. The guards had been given to protect the tomb because they were expecting the disciples to come and steal the body. And when they realized that the body was gone and that they had actually missed out the resurrection... 
they went back and they told the chief priests. And what would have happened to those guards is that they would have been put to, do, to death. They would have been executed for failing to do their job. That's how serious that was. And so we're told there in verse 15, that, or rather verse 13, that the elders and the chief priests said to them, Tell the people, make up this lie. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they take, they take the money and they did as they were directed. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now for Matthew to write this, it's very important that we understand Matthew is a converted Jew. Matthew is just as much putting his life on the line by writing those words and calling the head Jews of the day liars about the resurrection as those guards' life was in basically hanging in sway. In fact, for Matthew to write the gospel according to Matthew, which starts out by saying that this is the account of Jesus who is the Christ, was putting himself, if you will, under the guillotine. He was putting himself under threat of death for simply writing this gospel. And we will see some connections that are very important, how Matthew seems to have especially Jews in mind when he writes this gospel. But I, I want you to focus on the, the actions of true believers. Notice true believers, the first two women who see Jesus. Notice what they do. They worship Him. And when the disciples go and find Him on the mountain that He commanded them to go, what did they do? They worshipped Him. This is something that we should understand as very basic to our faith. Sometimes we lose interest if there's not some phenomenon being talked about. Tell me something new. Well, here's a rule of thumb, generally speaking, when it comes to biblical truth. If it's new, it ain't true. Just remember that. I'm not trying to poke fun here, but you'll often hear phrases like, you know, come over here, be with us and follow us. God's doing a new thing. Yeah? Well, if it doesn't line up with what God has shown us that He's been doing throughout His Word, be careful with that. Statements like that also usually rest in the midst of a lot of other fluff and glitter, but that's another sermon. One thing we should realize is on what we know as the Lord's Day, which is today, the day after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the Old Covenant Sabbath, which was Saturday. All the apostles in the New Testament church began to gather and do what these people are doing and worship Christ for having proven to be who He said He was throughout His earthly ministry. That He came to save His people 
from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, in the, in the dream that, that, that Joseph receives, the angel says, I know what you're thinking about doing, Joseph. I know that your fiancé, because they weren't yet married, I know she's pregnant. And I know that you're trying to be an honorable man, not because angels can read minds, because God had told the angel. I know that you're thinking about leaving her, but don't do that. Because what is in her womb? Who is in her womb? Oh, do we need to hear that today? Who? A person from conception is from the Holy Spirit. He is the Savior of God's people. And you are going to call him a young boy that will grow up and be a man. You're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he goes on in verse 22 and 23 to say, All this was to fulfill what God had spoken in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see these words again at the end of the Great Commission, don't we? I will be with you to the end of the age. This is the greatest need for every human heart today. Amen. We have been separated by God from our sin. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And there's so much in the word gave that it takes, well, a whole New Testament and, and years and years and years to unpack it. But in this passage, we are shown that the purpose of people becoming believers is to both have God with us and those of us who have received that to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a problem with that, according to the rest of the Bible, if Jesus is not God with us, if He is less than divine. You see, throughout the Bible, we are told that God was never created. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that we understand that everything that has been made was made by an eternally existing, uncreated being who spoke the world into existence. Who's worthy of worship simply because of who He is. And we are made to understand that even the most glorious spiritual beings that He made, angels, perhaps the most amazing in some of our minds, are not to be worshipped. There were many accounts all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament in the book of Revelation where people were amazed by the messages that angels brought and they fell down and started to worship and the angels said, no, don't you worship me. You worship God. But here we see Christ receiving worship. Again, remember that title, the Son of Man. 
He is showing us here. Now the time has come. No longer are you to be kind of quiet about me being the Christ. Now you see what it means that I am the Son of Man. All authority, the word authority there, exousia, doesn't just mean rights, but it means power. The root Greek word means authority and power. You see, Jesus is showing us that as the Son of Man, He has power over sin and even death. And He has the right to rule universally over every human and every element in creation. And so Jesus is separate and different than His creation, including angels. Be careful of people who use portions of the same Bibles that we do. But teach things like Jesus is a created being. There's entire movements. One of them is the Jehovah's Witness. That teach that Jesus is a created being. Others teach similar things like the Mormon movement. Be very careful. Just because people have manners, which is not the same as godliness, and use the same Bible, and are nice and are great citizens, they are not necessarily following the true Christ. True worship begins with an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is eternal, uncreated, but that He also took on flesh, lived a life of sinless perfection under the law, in every thought, in every word, in every deed, for all of His life. He took on flesh and became one of us as the, the last Adam to become the head of a new race, a new humanity of believers. This is how he became the spotless lamb. Because this picture which was shown throughout all of the old covenants, this sacrificial system that was put in place. Just think about it. What did an animal ever do against God? Nothing. Meaning they were innocent. And all of these millions, I guess, of animals that were innocent, that were sacrificed for countless sins of guilty people, were simply showing us a great collage that there is one who stands alone outside of those passages like Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but not this one. This one took on our nature to live under the weight of the same word, the same laws of God, and maintain perfect righteousness. Not only did Jesus come to die for our sins, but He came to live for our righteousness. So when we think about Him as a substitute, that is not, it's hard for me to use the word only, but it's not only about the cross. It's about Him being a substitute in our living 
Because we, even as Christians, cannot live a life of sinlessness. We cannot achieve sinless perfection in this life. We needed someone who could have a perfect righteousness for us. And these same women and these same disciples who had heard him, most of them at least, heard him utter the words on the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. They have now come to understand not only was he perfect in his living, but he drank the cup of God's wrath. He paid the penalty for our sins. And what else can that produce other than worship? If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you will worship Him. This is why we have gathered today on Sunday. This is why we follow the pattern of New Covenant, which is another way of saying New Testament, Christianity. What has been known as the Lord's Day from the mouth of the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit who wrote Revelation, I was on the Isle of Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That was referring to Sunday. Since the Sabbath was still well enacted, he meant the day after. So we see this pattern being laid out before he gives this commission. So these are the the immediate and the broader context that we see. And again, as the, the last Adam we see how all of this fits into the grand picture that Scripture gives us in all of human history. Because as I've said before, every human being, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, whatever your day was like yesterday, we all fit into one of two categories, and there's only two. We are either still in Adam, as we're all born by nature, in our sin, or we have by God's grace being born again and we are in Christ the last Adam the head of a new humanity that will be eternal that will make up God's kingdom and this is our heritage church we have to praise God on founders day not just for men and women that have come before us and laid the foundations for 92 years strong But we have to praise God that He has started a foundation from thousands of years ago with many names that is described in Hebrews 11 as a great cloud of witnesses. In fact, that there was a a, a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world according to Revelation who was slain for His people. That God had an intentional plan that He was outworking throughout the ages. Actually, let's flip to Hebrews 11. That's helicopter over to Hebrews 11. Just look at the end of that. Into verse chapter 12. I'll just read, before I go to the end, actually, I'll read from verse 13. 
This chapter goes from all the way back to the first people. In verse 4, Abel, the first son, the first child of Adam and Eve. The first one that came from their marriage. And it goes all through history up until the, the time when the author of Hebrews writes this book. But he pauses in the middle here and he says in verse 13, all these, all these people who had faith, which include Rahab, right? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, in other words, by faith, and greeted them from afar and acknowledged, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. This is how we have to understand our identity. I am a stranger and an exile in this world. This is not, this nation is not my predominant identity, nor yours as a Christian. We are not Caymanian Christians. Church, you hearing me? We're Christians who are Caymanians. We really have to drive this home. And I would have said English or American. doesn't matter where you live. It's the same point, right? Once you become a person in Christ, that has to be your superior identity. And so he says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to, to return. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. You see, this is one of the evidences that we see of true faith throughout the Bible. People who understand that the best is yet to come. Not in our retirement, but in our death, strangely. This reorients the way we even think about death. If Jesus hasn't returned by the time our time comes to close our eyes, and I know that's hard because it it is hard for us to let go of people who we love. But if they are trusting in Christ, in the moment they close their eyes in physical death, They open them in glory. And they see a better country. Amen? This is hope. That's what real hope is. But at the end of Hebrews 11, we have these words in verse 39 through the second verse of chapter 12. And these, meaning all these people, though though commanded by God through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, and that us means any of us who are believers in the same gospel, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our heritage, ultimately. That us is all those from the various nations and and families within them who were believers. We are, in a sense, caught up in that great cloud of witnesses. Uncle Bertie has gone into that cloud. Uncle Rupert has gone into that cloud. My father. Many of our loved ones who have gone before us have entered this cloud and they do not wish to be with us. Not because they don't love us, but because their hearts have been made full in what we were all ultimately made for. That better country, that heavenly home. And that is a strong, I would say, encouragement and sometimes a strong rebuke because we have to ask ourselves, how do I really feel about that? How do I feel about my contentment in this life? And how much am I seeking this better country? Part of that evidence is seen, the answer to that question is seen, in simple things like this, what we're doing. What's one of the ways that you see people seeking the kingdom of God? It's by what we could call simple faithfulness. Coming to church on a Sunday morning to do this same act together, to take hold, metaphorically speaking, of Jesus' feet and worship Him together, to glorify Him as His people. I read the account of how the church was founded recently. Dear sister, lend me her booklet. And I was reading and just thinking about the description of this one little dusty road that existed coming down here to Boston Bay and the amount of work that must have been put into all of it. And yesterday we took a a walk. I guess you could say a walk down memory lane. We walked from Centennial Towers to Graveyard and up to the schoolhouse and back and had breakfast. And I thought to myself, what a picture. When you When you put how this originally started with this one dusty road and the immense amount of work next to countless roads flowing in and out of these areas and twice the amount of access to the Word of God. But who is seeking? How many today are seeking this better country? It's almost like as the bushes were cut down and the roads were made, walls went up. Stubbornness is increasing in the hearts of many people in these communities who grew up hearing these truths. And it can become discouraging. It can become disheartening. It can become confusing. How can we reach these people? What is going on? 
And sometimes it's, it's easier to give up on thinking about these things and say, well, you know, it's uh, prophesied that, you know, in the end people grow cold and, uh, okay, move on and let's go. Say a prayer. Well, it is prophesied that in the end, in the last days, people's love will grow cold. And that is sad. And we must understand, church, those of you listening who are Christians, that we don't have any other tools in the tool shed than the church in the first century had. What do I mean by that? Well, let me say first of all, thank you to Radio Cayman for coming here today and live streaming the service. And thank God that we have access to help people who are unable to come out, who are sick, suffering with diseases and un unwell and can't come out. We are grateful that you have access and perhaps are watching this through Facebook or hearing it later on. But brothers and sisters, there was no radio or Facebook. That's kind of an obvious statement, right? In the first century. Yet, look at how far the gospel has been taken since then. How has this been done? Well, it comes back to these simple words. All authority has been given to me. Power. The power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is God's power for salvation to those who will believe. The Jew first and also the Gentile. That, that the word power there actually comes from the, the Greek word dunamis. I don't know if I'm actually pronouncing that right, but it's the same word that we get our English word dynamite from. You think about what dynamite can do? Serious power. But then again, let's just go back to Genesis 1. It's the same power that said, let there be light. Let us make man in our likeness and our image that speaks galaxies into being and holds everything together. As Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son, who is also upholding the universe by the power of His Word. And do you know what His Son did before He ascended? Well, that's where verse 19 and 20 come in. He delegated the mediated power of God the mediatorial authority and power of God which rests in His Word. We have not only access, but we have in our very hands, church, the authority and the power of God to transform lives and entire countries if it is His will. That is how His church has been sustained for over 2,000 years. And 92 here. That is how we will continue for another 92. How is he building his church? 
These are the words of Christ. After he says all authority, universal rule has been given to him. In verse 19, he says this, Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. Go, therefore, based on that authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That promise is not only saying that He's blessing us with His personal presence. That is enough. But that promise is saying that I will exercise my personal power through you, through my word, as you faithfully unleash it to your neighbors, to those who come across and fosters, to your brothers, your sisters, your spouses, your cousins, your mothers, your fathers, your uncles, your aunts. That's how discipleship works. It's so easy in the midst of confusion and media and, and, and discouragement to say, well, we need to figure out some kind of program. The greatest program, I would say the only evangelism and missions program that exists today is the church. God has one program that He has made. And the reason that I say that is because there's no spiritual power or life in programs or materials. But one who has been born again, who the Spirit of God lives in. Better yet, 100, who the Spirit of God is living and working in and is trying, are trying to, to faithfully abide by His Word and share it with others. That is where the power resides. This is the heart of discipleship, what we're doing right now. Make disciples. As I said, it includes two things. Evangelism. What is evangelism? It is sharing the gospel. Full stop. Modes, styles, those are secondary. It is saying to someone, we are sinners with no hope outside of the only Savior that exists, Jesus Christ. He has lived and died and risen again for you, if you will believe. You will receive not only forgiveness of sins, but you will receive a new heart. That's one of the prophecies, that's one of the promises of the Old Testament. That in the new covenant, people would be born again. They would have new hearts that desire the things of God. And you will have eternal life. Discipleship is quite simply God's people coming together under God's word and submitting ourselves to Him as we're doing now and continuing to be those who worship and grow together according to the teachings of His word. Make disciples of all nations. This picks up on another promise. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. You see a promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham, who's often referred to as the, the father of the Jewish faith. The father of the faith. If you turn to Genesis 12. In fact, that, that whole section from Genesis 12 through Genesis 17. God made a promise to Abraham. That there would be a blessing 
that he would make Abraham a blessing to all nations, that he would be a father of many nations, more than the sand on the seashore. He even comes to him again and calls him out one night and says, look up, look up at the stars. Can you count them? Rhetorical question. (laughs) No, you can't. Well, that's how numerous your descendants will be. But we're told that that's not just about physical. That's not really about physical bloodline descendants. The Apostle Paul makes it clear for us in places like Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, that it is those who believe with the same kind of faith that Abraham had, who believe the promise of God, which is culminated in Jesus Christ, who are his children. That song we sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. That's referring to people who believe like Abraham did. As the scripture says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness or counted to him. He was justified by faith alone. So we see here in this great commission that our business as the church is to be about discipleship of all nations. Why? Because we have become in Christ a new humanity, a new nation. So when we, when we see in the book of Revelation what happens in the end, we see that there are all tribes and, and tongues and nations surrounding the throne and there's a lamb who was slain receiving glory and honor and blessing and power and majesty and dominion. And he has been slain for the nations so that he alone receives the glory by this one people who are his. And again, this command to go. Often people read this verse or these verses at uh, perhaps like mission conferences. And you, you know, you get really excited like, go, go, go to the other side of the world. But the question that I once heard a pastor um, ask or a, a point that a pastor once made he said um, he's actually the head of a missions committee or a board I can't remember what it's called but a young man came up to him and said I just want to go with you to Peru and I just want to give my life away for Jesus and he said tell me um, what's your prayer life like oh you know yeah I got to work on it but I'm not talking about that I just want to give my life away for Jesus okay What's your Bible reading and Bible study life like? Well, I got to work on that too, but I just want to go with you and give my life. So, okay, um, how many people did you share the gospel with this month? Well, he said, have you not got the point yet? You think that you can be this radical Christian in a different sphere of life. But you can't do the basic things. You see, this command to go might mean go across the street. And if we've gone across the street 50 times, maybe 5,000 times it feels like, and nothing has seemed to happen with that going, it's easy to just give up. But we are commanded to make disciples. And again, this is where it begins. Coming to church on Sunday morning, being part of these services where we study, we pray, we, we, we preach. Some of us help in the Sunday school classes. 
And by the way, the best way for you to learn what your spiritual gifts are is not by taking a test on a sheet. Historically, this has been proven. And it's not going to be disproven. The best way for you to learn what your gifts are is by getting involved in the service of the church. And people will see what your gifts are if you can't see them yourself. I encourage everyone who's a part of the church to see how, how else we can be involved in things like Sunday school and eventually, in short order, things like youth group and so forth. Because we need to be about discipleship as a church. Together. And taking the Lord's Supper, as we will next week. Which is a, a proclamation of Jesus' death until He returns. And as we see in this text, baptism. There's, two, there's only two ordinances, or sacraments, you could call them, in the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of them declare the gospel. And do you notice that the name that you're to baptize into? Go and make disciples of all nations. And then do this act that marks them out by the Trinity. Not in the names, plural, but actually in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see throughout Scripture, the, the New Testament in particular, that there is one God who exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And please understand that just because we cannot wrap our entire minds around that concept, just like many other things, it doesn't make it false. It just proves the infinite majesty of the one true God. And He has chosen to not only exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but to work in time and history and in our personal lives as such. The worship of Christ on the Lord's day. The sacraments which proclaim the gospel and exist in the name of the Trinity. These are foundational things for the church. And it is faithfulness to these things that keeps a church. And even though it might, it might not seem like it, it is faithfulness to these basic things which are being challenged and, and we are being seduced to give up on. And to dress up in such a way that we might attract the world and actually end up forgetting about these basic truths. And teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. See, this begins at a young age, this discipleship. We cannot create spiritual life. In one sense, we cannot make a disciple. But we are the recipients of the word which the Spirit uses to make a disciple. To give new birth. James 1.18 says, You have been born again by the word of God. Children need to be discipled. We can educate our children, and we should, with biblical truths. So that the Spirit Himself can use that word to create the life that makes a person a member of his church. And this is what the church is. A body of believers who are gathered together for the purpose of worshipping Jesus Christ. And we have the, the great promise of Christ. In fact, we have promises throughout this entire gospel. 
which we'll see as we continue walking through. We have the promise of, as I said, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He will, not he might, but he will save his people from their sins. And we have the promise of Matthew 16, when Peter says that he sees now that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, G- and Jesus says to Peter, on that I will build my church. So we have the promise of Jesus saying, I will build my church. Amen. We can rest on these kinds of promises. And then he says, I will be with you always, even to the very end Amen. of the age. Church, on this Founders Day, I want to encourage you. And I want us to be encouraged and, and challenged together. The way that God has discipled His people through the ages is twofold. And the reason it's so simple, I think, is partly because it stops us from resting on our own cleverness or our own positions. But we don't even... I gave thanks for it earlier, but make no mistake, we don't need the government to give us freedom. We don't need freedom religious freedom for worship or to fulfill this commission think of what the church was born into the Jewish nation and the Romans were trying to stomp this faith out but by this authority by this power by the word and the spirit of God we're here today amen and that's all we need his word and us Trusting in Him through His Word. Intercessory prayer and the Word of God. That is how He's building His church. So that means every one of us who's a believer is vitally important. That's why Paul often uses the body analogy. Every single member of the body is important for the purpose of living and living out the purpose for which He has made us His church. Christ will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And do not fear opposition that is coming. Because another evidence of God being in the midst of His church is that when countries lose religious freedom and all the opposition comes down on them, it is only then that the real power of God or I should say that the power of God is really seen in a strange and glorious way. So we, we should just use this freedom we have now and buckle down and become serious about discipleship. Discipling each other together and evangelizing those in our community. And there's no strategy. You just say, Lord, help me to share your truth. Amen. That's really it. And then coming together and being committed. And again, I do want to stress, I, 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 we should be thankful for things like the radio and then all the other means by which the, the Word of God can get out. And those who are listening, who are unwell, God is so gracious that He will supernaturally meet you where you're at. But if you are able, understand that you are commanded to be part of our discipleship. 
as a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not be in the habit of not meeting together as some do, but do so all the more as the day draws near. And it's for your own good. It's for our own good that we come together feeding on the word of life. So may we see God's hand at work for these 92 years and pray for 92 more unless he comes, which he can in 92 minutes for all we know. And guess what? We'll be in a better country then. Amen? Let us pray to God that he will keep us faithful. For he is faithful and he will build his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before you as your church. Asking you to bless us at this time.